see the live photo. Okay, I'm gonna say, say, oh yeah, that probably helps. So welcome to the first um, founder interview series we're doing with Stratos. My name is Daniel Scrivener and I'm a partner at the firm. Um, and I'm joined today by Rennick, Blake, and Mike at Goldfinch. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great to meet you. So I wanted to, to start, and anyone can take this question, with just kind of giving everyone a little bit of a sense for what Goldfinch is. We're going to be spending, time, uh, spending a bunch of time today diving into the story of Goldfinch, the process of how you guys mapped out this protocol, some of the technical challenges you're grappling with, and, and kind of the vision for what you're building. So it felt like a good place to start was if um, you could share just a quick elevator pitch of what, it, what Goldfinch is and why it's important. Yeah, the like the, the high level kind of explanation of what Goldfinch is, is we were noticing all of this capital just sitting in crypto looking to be put to work in different ways and then seeing all of these borrowers around the world, especially fintech and lending businesses in emerging markets that have traditionally struggled to get access to capital because uh, of the frictions in the capital markets, but they have great businesses. So what Goldfinch is, is a, at a high level is this bridge, a way of connecting all of this capital in crypto and getting it in the hands of these really great borrowers around the world. And is that both personal borrowers, business borrowers, give us a sense for kind of what that looks like in terms of customer standpoint. Yeah, so the, uh, like the initial focus here is specifically lending businesses and fintech businesses in emerging markets. So what the Goldfinch protocol is doing is providing credit lines to these businesses that allow them to then take the capital and lend it out to their end borrowers, which include both businesses and customers. And so that's at a high level. And then we view these lending businesses as like the wedge to get started for eventually all private debt could, could use the blockchain for this. And, and why, why is the blockchain you know, an ideal or a better solution for something like this as opposed to kind of a traditional financial system? Yeah, uh, I, I, I can take this one. The, the blockchain really does two key things. Uh, one of them is liquidity and the other one is access. And so uh, taking the, the access piece, the blockchain makes it so much easier for anyone in the world to be able to contribute to individual deals and uh, you know, loans that a, a company may want. You know, uh, even, even today, right, there are people in, in Russia who are contributing to deals that are uh, being done through private credit funds, right, in New York. And, and those people generally wouldn't be able to have access to those types of deals. And I think that's a, that's a key thing. That it makes it so much easier to do that. And then the second one is this liquidity piece. And so, you know, typically if you were going to invest in a private credit fund, you're probably not going to see your money for, you know, five years plus. And that really drives up the cost of capital because then you have this kind of liquidity premium that needs to be paid out to people because they, they can't access the money. And crypto makes it just so much easier to create secondary markets for mm -hmm. tokens that uh, people may have, which represent their position in a given credit fund. And not only that, but you also have a lot more transparency over exactly where that money's going, right? Because those flows are on chain in a publicly auditable way. And so we think those two pieces of being able to get more liquidity and more access should, in general, be able to drive down the cost of capital. And we think that's that's why eventually all the private capital, private debt's going to come on chain. Yeah, it's super interesting. You know, and it seems like you hit on a number of points there. It feels like, you know, it starts to feel like almost a 10x better solution. Is that kind of how you think about how much better this is as opposed to this? From, it sounds like from both the lender and the borrower side, it's just a substantially better experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah go ahead, Mike. Yeah. I was going to say, like, there's, yeah, there's like the longer term bringing cost of capital down. But what it does even right away is just the capital formation is like 10 times faster and more efficient than it is in traditional markets where a lot of these businesses will take months to, to source capital and it might take them like a full year, whereas we can have businesses coming to Goldfinch and they can get funded basically within a week and, and get uh, just as much capital that way. And so just the speed and efficiency of that capital formation is way, way better than it is in traditional markets. Yeah, yeah I would super also add that uh, right now, just because of the sheer amount of capital that is sitting in the crypto space, I think there's there's just a, such a need for them to want to do something with that capital, right? It's sitting unproductive right now. We think that is a, uh, in a way, that's a real superpower of crypto for uh, for getting people to, to come here because in the normal world, there's just there's so many other things that can be, uh, so, so much competition really for, for the use of that money. But most of the money in crypto is going to stay in crypto land and they want to invest in things that are natively crypto. Yeah, super interesting. Renick, I want to ask you a question. So this is a unique interview in that you're the CIO of Stratos and you're also a founding team member of Goldfinch. Uh, and I wanted, you know, I know you have a somewhat extensive background in credit 
And so I'm curious if you could kind of weigh in from your perspective on what was interesting about the idea and, and why this seemed like such a novel kind of new take on something that's very old. Yeah, well, I think, I think Mike and Blake said it really well. Um, I think from my perspective of having done credit deals and, and venture deals in a non-blockchain sense and, and using traditional finance to do it, there are all of these frictions that add up to making it a lot harder to execute a deal. And so, you know, on the liquidity side, um, you know, just understanding the terms of investing in a fund or investing in a vehicle is this huge friction because there's not a lot of transparency. And then, for example, if, if you have a deal in the traditional finance world that is generating really high returns, if it's in the private markets, 99.9% .9 of the people who might want to invest in that can't actually see that that investment is available. So the observability is much lower. And so once you start putting things on chain, everything's open source, you can observe that in real time. And so capital will flow to it. And so that goes to Blake and Mike's points about one, there being transparency, but two, being really efficient uh, capital accumulation. Um, and so this was something actually that um, when I first heard of Ethereum, like in 2015, I thought there are all of these financial instruments that basically have the same problem, that from a structural perspective, because you're, you're using legal docs to define the terms, it's really, you know, there's a lot of friction and, and it's challenging to do these things at scale. And so the thought was, well, could you use a smart contract to do that? So when I was introduced to Mike and Blake and they told me their vision, I was like, yeah, this is awesome. I, I thought about something similar, not the same, but that the end goal of being able to bring loans on chain and do this at scale, basically on the internet, um, was something that really resonated a lot with me, just given those existing experiences. Mm -hmm. Mike and Blake, I mean, you know, looking into your background, you left, um, you know, incredible roles at Coinbase. And so, you know, and I imagine that was potentially a tough um, decision to kind of take that leap and be able to found this company. And so I guess my question is, um, you know, when, like, how long had you been thinking about this idea? And, and what did it take for you guys finally deciding to kind of leave and take the leap and to start building Gold Venture? Yeah, well, so... There, there's this idea in particular, I think it's also worth mentioning that Mike and I have known each other for over 15 years at this point, and we've worked on a bunch of projects together and have uh, sort of in the, the back of our minds had the idea of wanting to start a company together for, for quite some time. And I think we, especially while we were at Coinbase, you know, we were, we were seeing, this is probably late 2019, getting to early 2020, um, we were seeing these, these early signs of growth in the DeFi space. And that was that was really exciting to us because you know both Mike and I uh, are we're kind of you know application people at, at heart and we like building tools that, that people want to use um, at, at a kind of a higher level and so we were um, seeing this growth in the DeFi space and we were just getting really excited about that and we uh, we actually ended up going through this uh, thing called A6CZ Crypto Startup School in early 2020 which was we were still full time in Coinbase. It was it was not like at all like a Y Combinator kind of thing. There was no investment involved or anything like that. But it was uh, just some time and space for us to be uh, connecting with other uh, investors, entrepreneurs in the space, trying to think through different ideas. And uh, we, as we started doing kind of the research there, uh, we we started to see some some trends that really felt to us like uh, now was going to be the right time to start a business in in DeFi. And some of those trends were the rise of stable coins was, was get just being really, really hot end of 2019, early 2020. Uh, we were also seeing there's people actually starting to want to lend out their crypto. So having this, this, this user base, right, of, of people who want to do something with crypto, which wasn't even there, you know, probably a year prior to that. And we were also seeing uh, these uh, exchanges pop up around the world, making it really easy to move your crypto in and out of different local currencies. And those things together, uh, then really, I'd say what gave me at least the confidence to want to leave Coinbase was we started talking with a lot of different uh, borrowers. And uh, we started talking with uh, you know, places in emerging markets, these, these fintech companies. And as we were getting on the phone with them, we realized that they had just such a pain point. Uh, you know, they were spending half of their time trying to 
raise capital. And every time we got off the phone with them, they would say things like, oh, hey, so, you know, when, when are you guys starting? When can we do something? Because they just have, have such a need because there's just not as much capital in their their capital markets. And so mm -hmm. they're not able to raise um, in the same way that, that people are here. And so uh, between those those things, we started to say, like, OK, there's there's real borrower demand here. We think it's an underserved area and they're going to be willing to use crypto and they're going to be willing to try new things. And between all of those, uh, we were like, OK, we've got the borrower side, we've got the uh, investor side of things. So let's let's build a protocol, connect these two things. Like, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I would also just add, like, one of the things that brought us originally to Coinbase was we're super excited about crypto in general and this promise of what crypto could do to expand access to capital around around the world. And I, like, I've always kind of believed that, like, crypto is going to do for money what Internet did for information. And it's like I was like, I want to spend my, the rest of my life focused on, like, this thing that is crypto. So that's what brought me. To, to Coinbase and loving Coinbase's mission around building an open financial system. And I think, I know Blake also cared a lot about, about Coinbase's mission there too. So we just believe there's like so much potential in crypto. And then I think while we were at Coinbase, seeing uh, all of these components of DeFi coming up and being built and just seeing that, oh, all of these infrastructural pieces that Blake was referring to are here, it's possible, like we can actually do it. And feeling almost like antsy with the industry of like, trying to actually make it happen where a lot of the things that the like early building blocks built within crypto so far have been kind of like almost self-referential, like all entirely within crypto and, and referencing itself. But if we can get stuff outside of crypto to be part of what we're doing in the crypto space, that is like a hundred X, a thousand X what's happening on crypto today. So it was also just seeing the, just the broader possibility of DeFi and wanting to be part of making that happen. And then we did all, we did this like research that Blake was describing and then just hearing these like real pain points in these clear customers who would be able to benefit it, benefit from it like right away. Yeah, it's super interesting, you know, the point about the research you did and, and the fact that this protocol will land globally, you know, by default from day one. Um, and I'm curious, you know, because so much I feel like there's a lot of cynicism, obviously, around crypto and people will say things like you're not building anything real. It's all just speculation. This obviously seems very different than that. And so I think it would be helpful to kind of dig in a little bit more. I don't know if you guys would be willing to share maybe a story or two that you heard that kind of bubbled up during research. But just to flesh out a little bit more that, you know, there is a real need for people around the world who don't have enough capital in their markets to still borrow because they still have ambitions. They still have things they want to build. They have businesses that are interesting and important. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of stories come to mind. So one, one of them is actually uh, from one of the uh, early, very early employees who we hired. So uh, his name is Obina Okudu and uh, Obina had actually started a FinTech company in Nigeria. And that was a company around helping uh, people get access to apartments and things without having to pay super high, um, uh, uh, deposits up front in Nigeria actually typically pay like a year or even two years uh, up wow. front and it makes it really difficult for people to get uh, apartments and so they were kind of buying them and uh, basically as a fintech right they were kind of doing smaller payments along the way for people so they had to have, have credit and one of the things he, he noticed was that it was just really hard for him to get credit uh, despite the fact that the business was humming along right and eventually he actually thought that the bigger opportunity was around uh, he, he, he's, he's actually from uh, America. He was born in America. He mostly grew up in Nigeria. And then um, he went back to America and started a, actually kind of a, a little mini credit fund, uh, specifically to give money to all these fintechs that he knew and other entrepreneurs that he knew in Nigeria, because he just knew there was this arbitrage opportunity here, where there's people uh, in the West who had capital and didn't have great opportunities to put it somewhere, but then all these great opportunities in Nigeria. And then, you know, eventually he, uh, he one of his friends uh, was actually potentially one of our early customers told him about what we were doing and he thought this was like a much more scalable way of seeing the, you know, solving that same problem that he has. But I think it's, it's just powerful to think that here's an entrepreneur, he felt this problem right in, in the space and then he wanted to start a credit fund to solve it for many other people. And then, mm -hmm. I think you know, we're trying to do that exact same, exact same thing. Um, another thing that comes to mind, one of the very first conversations we had was uh, with another Nigerian fintech entrepreneur who mentioned us that they were spending, you know, 50% of their time just trying to raise capital. Right. And they have also like a good business that's that's moving along. And, you know, as we got into it, we realized that there's there's like structural reasons why capital is tough to come by in these places. And one of them is that often governments in these places will offer fairly high yield government bonds, which which are more or less risk free. And they tend to crowd out a lot of other investment. 
And so, you know, banks or um, even just uh, high net worth individuals have these other like pretty good options that are basically risk free, which makes them very not attuned to wanting to do anything even remotely risky with that capital. And so I think that combined with the fact that there's just also literally not as much money in a lot of these places means that you can have a good business and it's still, it's really tough to get the attention of Western institutions unless you want to raise like a ton of money, right? Like 30, 40, $50 million, something like that. But there's uh, a lot of people who are kind of in this gap, right? If you want to raise like maybe less than a few hundred K, you might be able to just you know, scrounge that together if you have the right connections. But you know, a few hundred K to like a five, 10, 20 million, like still actually pretty tough to find people who want to write checks of that size in these areas. So this is one of the places where we thought, oh, crypto can really make a difference here because it's so easy to get capital to anywhere in the world. And there's so many people in the crypto space with just so much money that's looking for something to do. Yeah, the Nigerian um, you know, kind of business owner who, who started a credit fund is such a fascinating example because he basically took the kind of high effort route. <laughs> you guys are here building the kind of technology forward hopefully low effort, community-based, um, decentralized route, which is really interesting. I, yeah. I thought kind of next it would, um, I think it'd be fun to talk about the process because obviously, you know, for people in crypto, you know, you hear about new projects and I think it's, you know, very different to kind of go behind the scenes and, and learn a little bit about more literally how those came about kind of from day one. And, you know, I know early on, you guys had a giant whiteboarding session where you were literally just daydreaming about how this, what this protocol could look like, what it, what, what it could become. Um, so maybe you could start there, or if there's an earlier point in time, feel free to start earlier, but kind of walk us through the process of how you start with this idea um, that I'm sure seems pretty simplistic and how you kind of, you know, think through that in phases into something you can implement and build. Uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think Renick was there for that too. He came to yeah. visit early on, helping us out. Like, uh, like in my kitchen, I have the whole wall covered with a whiteboard. So we were just there drawing stuff. I think, uh, how did we do that? So we, we had, like, I mean, it kind of started with thinking about, okay, here's, here's the folks that have the capital. Here are the folks we want to get the capital to. And you draw the arrows and you're like, okay, what are the incentives? that they need and so you start figuring out okay here's where they can get their economic incentives and then you have like you, you create like a baseline okay there's a bunch of people they're going to put money over here and these are the people that are going to receive it and then i feel like that's the first five percent and the remaining 95 percent is thinking about okay what are all the ways you can collude and cheat the system and and, and screw it all up and then kind of like really and then we think okay here's a way that people can screw it up so here's something that we can do that stops them but when you like do that this other thing opens up so you like gotta plug that hole and then you like are trying to plug all of the holes where you have incentives but then you have um frictions and constraints that prevent people from doing certain things and then trying to say oh well these aspects look similar so here's how we can try to make it a little more elegant and so i don't know i think of it I think of the process as being that kind of like meta level of like continually thinking like what are all the things that can go wrong and when you want to avoid it being like oh you just keep throwing patches on it so that you have like this like you know like book volume long list of different little functions that can do it you want to try to like then make it simplified um so i think at a high level that's sort of how we landed um but at the same time we were thinking about what is like the most um minimal thing we could do just to get funds moving around um and then what are the ways that we like incrementally add stuff on top and trying to segment so like at a certain point we knew we needed to have like an auditor system but we could at least just say there's going to be an auditor system and like solve the whole question of like how do auditors work like hmm. later so it was also that sort of like what are the key components and then which of those components do we have to like really get specific about how it works yeah. yeah, I would um, add a, a couple things around. I think, you know, one of the things that makes, that really makes crypto technical solutions difficult, like honestly, the whole thing is trying to make it work in a decentralized way, because this is a, a whole new way of organizing uh, relationships and, and business outcomes that hasn't really been done before. And everyone's sort of figuring out as they go along right now. You know, like when Mike was saying, hey, you're drawing arrows from uh, this person who wants to give money to this person. You know, in a centralized way, the answers of how you deal with other stuff are fairly easy is like you have companies of people you trust and you just kind of hope the people you trust do a good job, right? And uh, that's that's sort of works. But in a decentralized fashion, you have to sort of assume you can't trust anyone and which which forces you to have to come up with entirely different types of design. Mm -hmm. But of course, the, the trade-off there, it, they tend to like seem more expensive at the beginning because you're like, oh, I have this auditor system and like, I have to randomly choose people and they have to like state cap. Like, why don't you just pick a few people that you like? But like the the thing you get on the outside, uh, you know, after you've done that, if you made it decentralized, is you get you get scale. 
right? And you get stability over a long period of time because you've built a system that works even without any trust and you allow anyone in the world to be able to participate in these things. And that's, that's really the magic there. And so I think, um, you know, practically speaking, some of the things we did early on to kind of put ourselves in that mindset, we just started looking at the protocols that were around at the, at the time. And so every week we actually were doing this thing called Crypto Club. We still do it today uh, with the team. It's just, it's a little larger. It's a little different type of a thing. But in the early days, even just, just me and Mike and me and Mike and Rennick uh, uh, of trying to look at like a white paper or a, a protocol that's out today, analyze who are the, who are the players and the actors in their ecosystem and, uh, and try and see some of the patterns that were arriving, right? And then we would try and take inspiration from some of those to say, okay, like, what are our problems? How do we apply any of those lessons they have to, to this particular thing? And what are the new things that we're going to need to do ourselves? Yeah, it's super interesting. interesting. I would add to that, though, it just as like a taking a step back was at a, a very significant decision was, is there going to be some sort of automated form of underwriting? And mm -hmm. You know, a lot of other lending protocols that are trying to do or were trying to do things that were off chain or, you know, more uncollateralized were thinking about ways that they could do that. And I, and I think it was a very early decision to say, you know, that really isn't scalable because you can't come up with some sort of algorithm or process that's going to handle all of these different scenarios that the platform is intended to scale to. And so then it was, OK, well, how do you basically like bring human judgment on chain in a scalable way that is also trustless like that. That's a really interesting part, I think. Um, and that was a very early decision. And then, yeah, to Mike's point, like 95% of the rest of it was, okay, well, how do you do that in a way where you're not constantly getting ripped off? Cause obviously the thing's not going to work if that's the case. Yeah. And how, I mean, so I think it'd be interesting to dive into that a little bit more. Cause I think for any, you know, there's like this narrative, um, that's true, but has also, you know, gotten, I feel like more and more attention over time that underwriting is inherently biased and that it's difficult for people to get credit. And there's a lot of, you know, factors that kind of influence underwriting an individual. Um, and that's in a centralized way. And, you know, you can explain or think about some of the reasons why, why that might be the case, um, whether you like it or not. And it decentralized, it seems very different. So I guess just the question I would be interested is how did you guys approach underwriting someone in a decentralized kind of community-based way and, and thinking through the logic and kind of rule set there? Yeah, the the high level principle like at, at the end of the day you have to find a way to like how do you trust some some entity to do to do underwriting and there are different sort of mechanics we thought about of how to do it where we kind of landed on was this principle of trust through consensus which is hmm. if you have enough individual people to all agree that a particular thing is good at doing the uh, the underwriting then like you can generally trust the wisdom of that crowd and like you can decide how big that crowd needs to be like how many individual people but like the the underlying premise of the whole protocol is that you can have trust through consensus that if a lot of people are all agreeing that a particular say borrower is is good or say a particular credit fund or a particular underwriter is good at what they're doing uh, and they put they, they put their money there and say that they trust it then um, the protocol overall can trust that collective agreement of all those people and uh, all allocate even more capital to that. And so that is like the fundamental mechanism of the protocol. And then uh, what it allows is then whenever it allows mechanisms for a bunch of people to agree that a particular, I'll just say thing, a person, entity, business is credit worthy. And then when they agree on that and there are many people participating, the protocol allocates even additional capital to that. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the one of the um, inspirations for that was an index fund where like, why is it so hard to beat a stock market index? It's because the stock price is reflecting the collective knowledge of all of the investors in the space. And so in this case, if you said, OK, well, most people are not able to underwrite loans, but they want additional yield than what they could get on compound or some of these other protocols. But if you can give them access to that, it in a way that is diversified at scale, well, you can just benefit from other people's effort in forming this consensus about the loan by just providing capital algorithmically when enough people are backing it, which by the way, is a big differentiating design versus some of the other protocols in, in crypto trying to do somewhat similar things. 
because it's inherently decentralized and community-based, which seems really novel and, and new. Blake, I'm curious, you know, how how challenging, like, I love that idea. I imagine it's not necessarily easy to go and, and implement that because it hasn't been done before. What was it like technically to go and figure out how to build that? So you mean in terms of this specifically, this kind of trust through consensus mechanism? Yeah. Yeah. Anything so, novel there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think sort of mathematically there's anything super novel, but uh, you know, in, the, in the white paper, we, we describe a formula for how, how we think that works. It's not strictly based on the number of people uh, who are putting their, their capital in. It's also a notion of how evenly distributed that, that capital is. Um, I, I think th that, that formula alone isn't really going to be necessarily that, that complicated uh, to implement. Uh, honestly, most of the complication for implementing decentralized protocols comes in just like the tiniest details of security um, and making sure there's no way to drain funds uh, because there's just uh, there are so many eyes on every DeFi protocol, especially as they start to get uh, more money in them and it become these, these big honeypots. And it is uh, it's really tough because this is a, a new space of programming and it has different rules and different paradigms that normal programming doesn't. And so I think getting into this kind of security mindset uh, is one of the things that, you know, if you're a developer coming from what we said, the Web2 world, into kind of Ethereum Web3 world, then that's a, that's one of the biggest shifts you need to make is, is put in on this, hey, someone's always trying to steal capital from the pool and like the tiniest details can make a difference. Uh, there was a, um, a bug just a couple of weeks ago in Compound where like somebody missed greater than or yeah. greater than or equal to and millions of dollars uh, worth of rewards were given out. Money wasn't lost, it was rewards were given out when they shouldn't have been and it ended up being you know, tens of millions of dollars of rewards because of, eh, it should have been less than or equal to. And so I, th that's the stuff where I think it, it's it's really tricky and, and takes takes great engineering to get those those details right. And, th and also think architecturally, beyond those details of greater than equal to, like how do you just avoid these problems at all by the mm -hmm. way that you architect your system? And uh, I think those, those are the real, the real challenges for us. Yeah, gives me so much anxiety thinking about a you know a, a single bug. You're both trying to move really fast and innovate, and yet you also can't afford any errors. <laughs> You're trying to balance those two things yeah. at once. And, and I think you know, I'll just have one quick thing on that is I think the Web three space has uh, just sort of culturally, from an engineering standpoint, taken a very different route than the early days of the Web two of move, move fast and break things. Um, it's actually pretty standard practice for Web three companies to get code audits where hmm. you submit your code to a security auditing firm before you actually push it live. So and this tends to mean actually the teams have multiple month cycles where they don't deploy things. Whereas in, you know, even at Coinbase or in virtually every normal internet company, uh, most teams are deploying actually multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in crypto land, you're gonna deploy maybe once every every couple months, something like that, because you really wanna, you gotta build it right, you gotta do your tests, uh, you gotta you get it audited, and you really have this, again, security first mindset, at least you know, the good teams. Uh, do that. And it's, it's really important to, to do so. Yeah. I mean, it's, which seems like a good default, you know, do you wish that that was more the spirit in web two, or do you feel like, no, it's just really important in web three? Um, I, I do think it's just more important in web three because money is inherently at stake in web two, you know, okay, your photos don't upload, like it's not the end of the world. Um, but web three is, is different. It's pretty much all, at least, you know, the traction now is all this DeFi stuff and it's all money from day one. It's so much money is flowing in. I think it's a different set of considerations. Um, a lot of people actually, and also the immutable nature and the expensive, how expensive and slow it is to do things makes it hard to even upgrade, even if you wanted to. Um, it can cost you know thousands of dollars to do a deployment, which is also mm -hmm. not just two world efficiently. That's why they do it multiple times a day. Um, so, yeah, I think it's 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 a fair fair consideration. A lot of people have also even compared web three development closer to writing hardware than to writing software, uh, mm -hmm. because it's stuff that it can't change. It's immutable and it's it's hard to change later on. Yeah, that makes sense. Like culture, culturally fundamentally different. Um, Mike or Blake, you know, another thing that I think would be really interesting to, to talk about um, is just incentives. You know, incentives is a really important part of crypto. For this protocol, obviously, you've got incentives on both sides of the person allocating money. You know, you need to make sure that they're incentivized. The person that's getting the money, you need to make sure they have both good and bad incentives just to make sure they pay back the loan. Talk a little bit about how, what you know, what it was like to think through that and just anything novel around the incentive structure or, or anything even that you learned in the process of thinking through that stuff in the design of the protocol. It's interesting. It's hard. Uh, that's that's the first thought I have is like we would um, come up with an approach that we thought was cool, and then someone like I don't know, Blake would think of an approach, and I think of something way you could break it, or I would think of something, and Blake would think of a way you could break it, and we're like, okay, you can't do it this way because <laughs> if you get a hundred people over here to do X, Y, Z, they're going to be able to like 
do something different than what the protocol would want. Um, and so it's like a lot of, um, I don't know, you try something out and then you try to like just see every way you can think of that uh, things could go wrong. And then, uh, then the, the tricky part is like, you're like, oh, that could go wrong, but like, what's the likelihood that people would actually do it? And then you're like, well, if there's like $10 billion in this protocol, someone's gonna figure out how to do like that thing. And so you, you have to take every single potential like crazy scenario as like, yep, that could happen if there's enough mm. money going through it. Uh, and so like, um, I don't know, I feel like that was like a very long process where we would have like a, like a notion doc that we were brainstorming and then we would just keep commenting, well, like here's something that could go wrong here, here's something that could go wrong here. Um, and then we were, we had like a bunch of advisors from throughout crypto who've been thinking about this, we would share it with them and try to get them like, okay, what are all the ways that you can imagine this thing going off the rails? And um, that that was like the majority of the process is like continually just trying to find every every way you could have all kinds of collusion between all of the participants that would screw up the incentives. So like I feel like it's easy to it's the easiest part is thinking about what will incentivize someone like oh you give them you give them money and then that incentivizes them to do the thing. Like what are all the ways they could make more money? by doing things that like aren't that action. Sure. Um, and that's sort of where all the work goes into it. Blake, anything to add there? Um, yeah, I would just say that we, we we think about incentives explicitly and in the white paper, I think each, each participant has a section of just like incentives. And we have been baking that in from the beginning. And you obviously just wanna do things that are gonna be aligned with this, this higher level goal of you know, the protocol making money, right? And, um, you know, like for instance, on our we have you know, the main participants in the protocol. I guess we haven't talked about that yet on the show. Or the uh, you know, uh, borrowers, you know, what we call backers, LPs, or you know, liquidity, liquidity providers, uh, and then these auditors. And you know, for, for instance, we, we try to align the incentives of the of the backers by saying, okay, well, the backers, yeah, they put money in, and uh, they're gonna have this this interest from the the you know senior aggregated pool, the LPs. That's gonna be reallocated to the backers, which gives them an economic incentive to choose good deals. Um, but like really, if we want that incentive to be aligned, the backers need to be first lost. So they need to be junior tranches. So this whole notion of having a tranched pool uh, was came, came through this the thinking. Uh, okay, well, how do we make sure that these backers who are signaling to the the uh, the senior pool where the money should go? How do we make sure that they really have skin in the game? And that's how you think about those incentive alignments. So we came to this idea of like a, a tranche pool system. And that's, that's just one of the examples there. Yeah, it's super interesting and obviously not, you know, somewhat inspired by, I guess, traditional credit funds or traditional the way kind of credit structured. Uh, it sounds like a lot of that process is obviously you're thinking specifically about your protocol and just all the one off or specific cases where things could go right or wrong. For someone else that's getting started or thinking about a protocol, was there any, you know, great documents, any great writing or any great examples of other protocols and incentives that you referred to? You know, is there anything you would point other people to as just a great resource? Sorts in terms of thinking about incentives. Um, to be honest, no. Uh, there's just not a lot. A lot of stuff that's been collated yet on the industry. Uh, if I was going to point anyone to something, I would say you should like, look through the white papers of the successful protocols that are out there, mm -hmm. um, because there, there's a bunch of ideas on how to do things. And uh, at this point, it's still so early. I'd say the only way you know that something actually works is it's it's out, it's live, and it it, it hasn't been wrecked yet. Right. And, and it has a substantial amount of money such that you know that somebody could and someone would want to have the incentive to find ways uh, to, yeah. to hack the protocol. And so I think we you know looked at, at things like Uniswap and Compound and Nexus Mutual and some of these other really early protocols that have seen success. And we were like trying to pick out the patterns um, of, of how they work. And you try and see high level ideas, things like, OK, it's, it's OK for these protocols to have actors who um, you know, take sort of human level actions, for instance, like um, you know, Compound is the idea of a liquidator. Liquidator is not, um, they're not like an employee of Compound. I think if it was a normal Web2 company, that's what it would be. The Compound would do the liquidation hmm. themselves. Um, but since it's Web3, you know, anyone can do it, but you have to realize, okay, well, they're incentivized. How are they incentivized? Well, in Compound's case, they incentivize them, we give them a 2% arbitrage fee if they liquidate, right? And you want to think, well, how do we, how do you set that number? And like, just as long as there's no coordination necessary among the actors, it's fine to have an actor who has like a human level uh, judgment or, or trait. And I think you know, that was one thing early on when I, when I was very, very early thinking about blockchain stuff, I kind of be like, well, does everything need to be automated? Is that kind of what people are saying? It's like, no, like really what we're doing is trying to create coordination mechanisms that hmm. don't require uh, companies. They don't require formal legal uh, entities or anything like that. I think that's, that's the real magic. And, and the token is kind of your, uh, your like 
secret sauce that you can just kind of like put it in different places and you can, or, or if it's not the token itself, it's, it's other sort of forms of profit or money. But you're putting those in different places and letting people get access to them and you can assume they're going to like, you know, use their energies to go get that, right? And then you can mm -hmm. put these things that are useful to the protocol, such as liquidation, uh, in front of them and they will be able to take those actions in order to get the capital. Yeah, it's super interesting, and it's. Um, I think it's. It's yeah, it's interesting to talk about that as coordination. You know, in terms of that's why incentives are so important. I, I'm curious, um, Blake. You know, I know this. This may be there may be an interesting answer here. There may not be an interesting answer here. But uh, you know, I'm curious. Like, how much time did you spend thinking about what blockchain to build on top of? And you know, because now there are starting to be some interesting examples in you know Solana and Ethereum, for instance. Did you yeah. spend much time there? And is there much in the way of pros and cons? And then it just maybe talk about the blockchain you chose and, and why. Yeah, so we're, we're built on Ethereum um, and we've, we've always been, been built on Ethereum. Uh, to be honest, at the time, especially in, in you know, kind of uh, spring 2020, which is when we were first getting these ideas. And we, we left Coinbase in, in July of 2020. Um, you know, there were other blockchains for sure, a bunch of other blockchains. Uh, but if you looked at where the capital was and you looked at where the liquidity was, the answer was only really Ethereum. And so from our perspective, there, there really wasn't even any other options. And we knew that gas prices were going to be super high on Ethereum. We knew, of course, there was these scaling solutions, these L2s, things that were on the horizon. Um, they weren't quite there um, at the time, but they were, they were coming. And uh, you know, we knew the gas prices were going to be an issue, but we also think we couldn't realistically build on any other chain because you need capital to lend, you need a user base already there. We weren't prepared to try and hope and wait that we were going to pick a winner. Um, mm -hmm. with some other chain. And I would say this actually even factored into uh, to the, the, the early customers, right? We're using um, companies, that's who we're lending to. And that is important because they, they borrow fairly substantial amounts of capital, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars at a time. And that means that even when gas prices are really high, it's fine uh, because you can amortize it over that large amount and it, it's okay. You know, I think as scaling solutions really start to come online, there's a world where Goldfinch can hopefully be lending capital in much smaller denominations directly to these companies and borrowers uh, and have this full life cycle on chain, but we're totally not there yet and we definitely need a scaling solution. I think in terms of today, if you're building a, a protocol fresh, I think it's it's a bit more of a question as to whether or not uh, you think about your particular application and whether or not you wanna have a more scalable blockchain or you wanna um, you know, use an, an L2 system, which is just another thing for ways to make Ethereum scalable. And I, I think it's, it's much more open question because those things are much more mature um, in the last, they've matured a lot in the last 15 months. There's actually substantial amounts of capital on Solana, on Celo, on uh, Polygon and, uh, you know, these other uh, networks there. And so I think if your application really demands that, I think it's, it's very uh, you know, reasonable to think about building that from the get-go on, on these yeah. sort of global solutions today. Yeah, which I think also speaks to crypto because the fact that literally, you know, slightly more than one year later, <laughs> it's a whole yeah. array of options where a year ago there wasn't is, is kind of fascinating. But Blake, one more question for you. You know, um, just as a CTO, as, a, as an engineer with an incredible amount of experience, what has been some of the most fun technical problems or creative problems in terms of working on this protocol over time? Like, what have you enjoyed the most? Um, yeah, I mean, me and uh, and a lot of the other engineers who, who have joined, we have a lot of the really experienced people on the team. Uh, you know, the thing when we ask them, like, what you, what's going to be interesting for you about joining Goldfinch from a technical perspective? Um, well, I'm saying I want to work on smart contracts, right? And uh, that's, you know, for me too, it's, it's been really interesting and fun mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a bit of a, a paradigm shift. Like as I said, the same kind of patterns don't work. Um, you know, Web2 world, you're used to building uh, things with, with a database. You have like an ops team. You have to think about deployment. Um, and you think about uptime and all these things. And actually Ethereum does all of those things for you. You have not to worry about any of that, which is like amazing. And, and yet also you have all these other considerations, right? Uh, you're, you're, you're in a much more what we call adversarial environment where uh, you have people who are constantly looking at it. Your code is always public. You can't really turn off the machine. Um, so it, it's very hard uh, to think through all the potential attack vectors that can happen, especially when you start integrating with other protocols. The tech vectors are very novel. And so I think thinking about those security considerations, building in a new language such as Solidity um, has its has its own challenges. The, the ecosystem is not very mature, which tends to mean your developer experience is not that great. But uh, there's also a uh, you know part of a lot of engineers that finds that kind of thing fun. You're, you're coming mm -hmm. up with patterns yourself. Um, you're having to build some of the tooling yourself. And uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's the part that's been most interesting for me and the other engineers. Yeah. Mike, what about for you? What is this, what is working on Goldfinch been like? What have been some of the hardest and most fun parts of this? Oh man, I think uh, thinking through these mechanics and trying to like battle test all of these ideas, seeing how things could go wrong. And I view that as like one of the hardest things is coming up with 
a system that is scalable, it's like very easy to kind of like punt on some of these questions. Like, oh, how will this, how will this whole area of the protocol work? Is like, oh, you could just solve it later. But then, yeah, it's really hard to think through them. So that has been um, for me the both like the most challenging part and and the most fun part. Mm-hmm. Renick, same question for you, and then I'll move on to a couple of closing questions. But you know, I frame it slightly differently. So you're spending most of your time on the investor side. This is a, an opportunity to go and, and build something that you've thought about for a long time. Talk a little bit about what it's been like to work on this protocol. Yeah, it's it's almost like having, um, a, for lack of a better phrase, like like a cheat code in a way, where like all of these things that are broken about traditional finance and, and traditional legal docs and fundraising and things that have been, you know, I've lived day to day, you know, in a past life running a credit fund like are things that we can say, okay, now we're starting over. What is the right way to do this? What are the tools that are available to make this work really well? And then, you know, obviously being able to work with these guys to, to think about, okay, well, what's the best way to do this that is uh, compatible with, um, you know, the open source and, and trustless nature of blockchain. So that's been really fun. It's almost like saying, okay, what is the, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a blank canvas in a sense. Um, and then saying, okay, well then once Goldfinch succeeds at X, then what is, what are the other shoes to drop after that? And thinking about that both from, okay, is this an opportunity to continue adding features or capabilities to Goldfinch? Or is this something that another team is going to go and build? And, you know, maybe we'll look at finding some way to invest in that. So it's fun to be involved on both sides in that way. Mike and Blake, maybe just kind of flip, you know, flipping that question in, in asking you it in a different way. You know, what has it been like working with Rennick, someone who spent a ton of time in kind of traditional credit? Obviously, you're building something new. You want to borrow. You obviously don't want to reinvent the wheel and you want to borrow. Whatever is working or whatever is useful, how helpful has that been? What's it been like? Oh, I mean, super helpful. Uh, you know, we definitely couldn't have, have been here without, without Rennick. Um, Rennick introduced us very, very early on. And you know, Mike and I's background is all product and engineering here here in the Valley. And so we, uh, both of us actually did go to Wharton and we, you know, know some things about finance, but like, we're not, uh, we're not like finance people. And so, especially not, you know, credit and risk and, uh, and that sort of thing. And so um, having Renick early on to help us uh, get the early deals and help us do some of that early evaluation of the potential deals was, was, was critical. And, and also being just a, a mind in the room as we think about these product decisions of kind of like, well, you know, Renick's basically the customer, right? And uh, so he brings a lot of perspective that we don't have, which has been uh, really valuable. Like, uh, you know, one thing early on, I remember we we were like, oh, so like all these deals are probably going to be like amortized like a mortgage or something, right? That sounds reasonable. We like built this whole amortization thing. Nobody wants that. Like, uh, and, but, you know, Renick was able to tell us, like, that's not how the deals work. And, like, you, know, we can, you just want like a bullet repayment at the end for all the principal, which is actually like much simpler, but like, just, you know, yeah, you want to optimize. You always yeah. want to just keep, you know, keep make, keep tweaking that dial. Yeah, and I was like, oh, it's cool. I built in this way where like you can slide how much amortization you want, eighty percent, twenty percent. Like none of that's relevant. Yeah, <laughs> which is helpful, yeah, Mike. Yeah, I sometimes think about kind of uh, how crazy Blake and I were a little bit at the very beginning because we're like, we're going to start this thing and we're just going to do like debt deals in emerging markets. We we'd never done a single debt deal in an emerging market before and we didn't have Renick involved at that point but we we're just like we're just gonna do it while i figure it out which was crazy i think of us to just kind of like jump right into it um but then yeah it was amazing to have uh Renick's help early on basically this whole area which was just like a massive blind spot that we had um getting started and it really just kind of changed how we were doing a bunch of different things from the product design to going to market and and structuring the deals and stuff like that yeah, um, I sometimes wonder, like, we got introduced to Renick, actually one of our investors, like, as Mike was saying, we didn't have any experience doing this stuff, and that was probably, like, the reason why, you know, 90% of the investors passed on us in the, in the beginning, um, but uh, we especially talked to Alex Pack, who's a, a friend of, of Renix, and I think Alex was, like, uh, able to see the dots of, like, oh, I can just introduce Renick to you guys, and this is going to be really good. <laughs> So shout out to Alex as well. I, I want to close by talking a little bit about the vision. And, you know, Renick shared with me that 
you know, one of the visions, which is really cool and really novel and, and kind of speaks to the specialness of what you guys are building, is this idea that, you know, you, meaning the team that's building, maintaining, improving um, Goldfinch, you know, can effectively all be on vacation on some beach island and the community at some day in the future is approving all these individual loans. Maybe talk a little bit about that vision and how unique that is in crypto compared to, you know, just kind of the regular world. The Bahamas test. <laughs> yeah. I've also I've also heard a more gruesome version of the meteor test, which is like yeah. about five meteors yeah. can keep existing. But the Bahamas has <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like this is sort of like what a lot of us in crypto are trying to get after um across all the different protocols, which is the, the thing that makes crypto so beautiful is that it is decentralized and it is run by the community and it doesn't rely on any single participant. To make it work it's just it's not centralized and so um what we view as kind of like the north star for what we're building uh when we're trying to say like, what are we really trying to get after is a situation where the the protocol is flourishing on its own without not only our involvement working on developing new features without us working on like uh like building or like trying to find folks who want to participate in the protocol but also <laughs> not even using any of our own infrastructure uh, and so like, like, just crazy, it's a crazy thought. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. open source everything and hope other people build their own tools on top of it and, and host their own versions of things that use it such that like, like literally nothing that we're doing is involved in the protocol at all at kind of like this mature state. And that's what we're, that's how we think about everything that we're working on is like, does it get us a little bit closer to us? Like no longer being like actually part mm. of it in any way. Yeah, it's very different. One of the this is really like the the magic. This is the 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 really novel thing about crypto is like you can start companies with the with the intention to disband the company, right? Which is never thing, right? Always it's, it's before the company it lives forever and uh, is trying to grow to infinite size. And this is just one of the things I think is is so cool that and one thing you're going to see that like crypto companies I I don't think are ever really going to get that big by normal company standards, right? It's it, Google sixty thousand people. I think it's going to be rare for crypto companies to get above 60 people, 100 people. Hmm. You know? um, and eventually, you, know, you build protocols that just work, and then you don't need that the company where the community can run it. Developers can uh, can be submitting patches and, and improvements to it, and you have this token to incentivize people. This is the this is the thing, right? If you shut down any other company, who, why would anyone keep working on it? But when you have a token, uh, then all of a sudden you can incentivize people to continue working on it, even if they don't have an explicit employment contract with you know, whoever the firm is. And so I think that's the, that's the unlock that Web3 provides. One thing yeah. I'd add to that, Boyk, is it's not about whether the company gets big or not, but it's like the company becomes the community. And so, yeah, Google has tens of thousands of employees. Well, these yeah. communities will have millions of people. And so yeah. if you think about the protocol as the company, they will be massively larger than any companies that exist today, but they won't be like, I don't know, corporations. There'll be like a community yes. running it and it'll be like way larger than any company exists today. But because that community is all has ownership and and is invested in that protocol, that's how it like really flourishes beyond anything possible with typical corporations today. Yeah. Which is an amazing vision of the future. Because rather than, you know, it starts to kind of paint a world where rather than going and spending eight hours of your life kind of working somewhere, maybe you're just spending your time and you're working, you know, you're working with, you're part of, or you're part of the community on 10 protocols, you know, and you're spending a little bit of time on mm -hmm. them each day. And um, it's really interesting. Okay, one final quick question, just, you know, quick answer from each of you. We'll start with Rennick. What, you know, as you think out kind of two, three, four, five years with Goldfinch, what's the thing that you're most excited about? Answer could be anything. <laughs> Man, that's a hard one. Um, there's a lot of things. Um, I think the the combination of the idea that um, ultimately crypto and DeFi will have the lowest cost of capital in the world and what that enables, because thinking about it like this sinkhole where like as the lower the cost of capital is, all the money is just going to keep flowing that way. And Goldfinch is in this position to basically help, you know, intermediate that. And so as that continues to play out, which it already seems like it is, that's really cool. But the other side of that, which the first part enables is the thought of someone who would be working at some big fund or not, you know, some, someone who just knows their community well, going on Goldfinch and making loans. Um, without any of us ever knowing them or being involved at all is just like a really cool 
thing and it's not that far away. So Blake, what about you? Yeah, I think one of the things that's most exciting to me is getting to a stage where Goldfinch can be facilitating uh, loans and repayments in a fully on-chain way. And I think this is going to take you know, scaling solutions, as I was saying a little bit earlier. But you know, this idea that you could have someone in Nigeria who wants to buy, uh, you know, uh, wants to fix their car or wants to like buy, uh, you know, a gallon of milk or whatever. And you know, they would normally use a, like a credit card, and maybe that gets funded by a local bank or something. But now you've created a system where actually it can be funded essentially by some random person from the rest, of, like anywhere in the world, and they can be sending money directly to a, a store that's on chain. And that removes like so much risk out of the equation that like that's opening up a whole new world of economic transactions that could never take place because you have this fully on-chain lifecycle that's so much more auditable and more automated and, and can be trusted anywhere in the world. And I think that that is like just so cool. We're not there yet. This is uh, we've sometimes talked about that we're building Goldfinch like it's Netflix pre-streaming, you know. <laughs> and but like once once economic activity starts to move on chain over the, the coming years and you start having scaling solutions that, that really work. I think we're going to start seeing that streaming aspect and that's going to like really blow people's minds. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause it's like a whole new path for, for money to take, um, to go move from one party to another. Um, Mike, what about for you? Yeah, I think I'm excited about these things that both Renick and Blake described, the kind of real immediate impact is going to have around the world. Like our, our mission as a company is to build a decentralized credit platform that really does expand financial inclusion. And we're already starting to see that with the, these businesses that are already using Goldfinch, that they just want to grow their businesses a lot more than they already are, but they struggle to get the capital. Uh, and already we're able to do that. And I think the protocol has the capability of scaling very quickly. And we can just see the immediate impact that could have in all of these different economies around the world, both these, these businesses that can grow much faster than they otherwise would, and then new businesses that can come up and get capital in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to. And so I'm excited to see the impact of the things that Renick and Blake both described, just in terms of like the fair economic growth that it could power. Yeah, that's amazing. For someone listening that wants to learn more about Goldfinch, maybe become part of the community, where can they find you online and where can they join to, to become a part? Goldfinch.finance, uh, all, all the links are there. Okay. Yeah. Is there a Discord or a community that you guys? Oh yeah. Kind of oh yeah. There's big Discord. Out. Lots of community involvement. Uh, we actually have like we've recently over fifty thousand people in our Discord. It's, it's been really uh, exploding. We're so happy to see all the community excitement. People are just really pumped about uh, the vision and the mission of, of what we're building. Um, the links are all on goldfish.finance to join the Discord. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Renick. It's been an awesome conversation. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks so much, Daniel. All right. I guess that means we hang up. Thanks <laughs> for